everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about reducing screen time in their home. This is Melanie Hempy, and I hope everyone is doing well today, having a great day. If you're new to our podcast, um, here at Screen Strong, we believe that it is possible for kids to grow up without the anxiety and stress of video games and social media. We really believe that and it works. <laughs> I've worked in this space for about eight years and we've made a lot of mistakes in our, in our own family. But one thing I want to just point out, because I think a lot of people get confused when they first hear about Screen Strong, um, we are not anti-screen. We just believe that you have two options. Number one is to use screens for toys and entertainment and social interactions and all that. And your next option is to use screens as a tool and to pause the video games and the, and, and the smartphones even and the social media and all those toxic things that happen until your kids are just better equipped developmentally and ready to handle, you know, just more ready to handle them. So what we do at Screen Strong is we help parents keep their kids' entertainment and their social life in real life and offline. So it works really well. So we just kind of erase a lot of the problems that people have with conflicts. Um, you know, a lot of people can't get their head around this door number two option. <laughs> so we're here to help you do that. And just this morning, I was just realizing something that happened in, in our house because we have four children and the first two, you know, we didn't necessarily have our head on straight <laughs> with this topic, with this issue, with games and social media. So they kind of went off the rails, but, um, they're back and they're fine now, but our younger two, we've really figured out how to structure our lifestyle a little different. So I got up this morning and one of the boys before school, um, cause we are back in school. I know a lot of people aren't, but he was up playing the piano and he was playing the piano for about 30 minutes. And it was just incredible. I was getting dressed. I came downstairs and I just thought, wow, this is so cool to wake up to a, a kid who loves to play the piano. And, um, you know, cause in the old days I would wake up to having to get kids off of the video game before we went to school. And as I thought about it, I thought about how did that happen? And it happened because I and my husband changed our lifestyle in our home and we made that happen. Now, I don't want you to think that we were like the army sergeants banging our kids over the head to make them play their piano, but we structured our home very differently. And one of the most influential people that helped us do that is on our show today. And I am so excited. Today, you're going to meet one of the experts who has actually become a very good friend of mine, who helped us tweak our parenting and opened our eyes to some of the problems um, about how parents, you know, treat their kids like adults. And we shouldn't, we should be treating our kids like kids and we should be coaching them like they're on our team instead of letting them run the show. So he has been a family physician for over 30 years and author of many books, including the collapse of parenting, how we hurt our kids when we treat them like grownups. Welcome Dr. Leonard Sachs. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me back. Great. Well, our Screen Strong book of the month this month is your book, The Collapse of Parenting. Thank you. And so today we are discussing part one. So everybody put your seatbelts on because it's going to go fast and it's going to be really good. So the part one of Dr. Sachs's book is The Problem. And we're going to start just by having him discuss a little bit about this chapter one, the culture of disrespect, right? So Leonard, no child is born knowing the rules. Every child must be taught. So let's talk about your thoughts on that culture of disrespect. Well, as you just said, uh, Melanie, no child is born knowing what's right, what's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to be courteous and respectful? One of the points I make in that opening chapter is I just ask the question, what is childhood for? Mm -hmm. A horse is full grown at four years of age. The Kentucky Derby is, is raced with three-year-olds. A four-year-old horse is a mature adult. 
a four-year-old child has barely begun. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Uh, well, you know, we don't have to guess. We have uh, scholars like Dr. Melvin Connor at Emory who've devoted their careers to studying that question. Uh, and the question is uh, that a human is a child or an adolescent for more years than most mammals live. Uh, why is that? Uh, and the answer that Dr. Connor and other scholars come up with is that it takes many years for parents to teach kids the culture, uh, the full range and breadth and depth of all the things that a child must know in order to uh, flourish. And that's not just learning a trade. Each culture constructs the rules differently. And there's a tendency to overlook that. Uh, and so in that chapter, I, I uh, spend a few pages on samurai Japan, um, the culture of Japan uh, from the Tokugawa shogunate uh, in 1603 to the Meiji restoration in 1868. That was a profoundly different culture um, that had very different ideas about what right and wrong consisted of. Uh, and my point in doing that is not to say that, that our culture is right or their culture is wrong, but to say cultures are different. Yeah. And kids are born, if your child was born in, in Japan in 1610, your child would learn that culture. Mm -hmm. And that culture is unrecognizably different from our own. Yeah. Um, well, if you want your child to honor the values of your culture, of courtesy, of respect, of right and wrong as you understand them, then you must teach your child. You must teach your child right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And here there's been great confusion in American culture and in English-speaking culture uh, around the world, really, uh, for decades, but it's gotten particularly bad in the last 20 years. Uh, and I cite Norbert Elias. Norbert Elias was a German sociologist who wrote a, a very, uh, I think, a very important paper titled Über den Veränderungen in europäischen Verhaltensstandards in 20. Jahrhundert. Oh my. Uh, didn't get much press in this, in this country, but he was writing, uh, the title means regarding changes in European civilization in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and Dr. Elias said that the biggest change was the transfer of authority oh. from parents to children, the collapse of parental authority. And I think he absolutely nailed that. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a family doctor for more than 30 years, I have witnessed that firsthand. Uh, you know, as recently as 20 years ago, parents were quite comfortable saying things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. But over the last 20 years, I've seen that com command morph into a question. And the question is often something like, well, you know, how would you feel if someone did that to you? And the parent has no idea how to respond when the son says, if someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I also quote from the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, where we've just gotten the commandment to love the Lord your God. And then uh, the verse is, usually translated and teach them diligently, teach these laws diligently to your children. Mm -hmm. But as I point out in the text, that's not actually what the Hebrew says. Uh, I've been a student of biblical Hebrew all my life and, and Hebrew scholars agree that, I mean, it's not controversial. That verse mm -hmm. in Hebrew is vishinantam levenecha, vishinantam levenecha. It would be easy to say, teach them to your children. The verb would be lamed, but the verb is not lamed, it's shanan. Shanan means to chisel in stone. Hmm. So what Deuteronomy 6 is saying there is you've got to chisel these laws in the hearts of your children, inscribe them in the hearts of your children. Might be wow. a, better, a better translation. And on the very next page of my book, I uh, quote a regular columnist for the New York Times, 
Jennifer Finney Boylan, who wrote a column on enlightened parenting. And she said, and I'm quoting now, uh, she said that enlightened parenting means setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing, your child becomes a stranger to you, then so be it. Oh. That may seem enlightened, but it's no. not enlightened. It is a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, and they have an internet connection and a screen, what they're going to discover is Instagram, TikTok, mainstream pornography, Miley Cyrus, uh, uh, Kylie Jenner, uh, mm-hmm. Kim Kardashian, uh, and you're not doing your job as a parent. Again, the scholars tell us that childhood and adolescence is as long as it is to give you, the parent, a chance to teach right and wrong. That New York Times recommendation to set your child free is not only a dereliction of duty, it's profoundly unhuman. It's not what we're programmed to do in our DNA. But it's a great challenge now for parents because Mm -hmm. the entire weight of the culture from the New York Times to the best-selling parenting books uh, to the some of the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics are now undermining mm-hmm. the authority of parents. And the parent who wants to follow that traditional guidance of inscribing these laws on the hearts of your children uh, is really going to have to be a courageous parent because you're going to be going against the mainstream culture if you right. live in the United States. You'll be going countercultural for yep. sure. And I think the quote, this quote in your book that says, we now live in a culture where kids value the opinions of same age peers more than they value mm-hmm. the opinions of their parents, a culture in which the authority of parents has declined, not only in the eyes of children, but in the eyes of parents themselves. Yep. So there's this role confusion that you're talking about. Role confusion. That's the word that uh, Dr. Elias coined in his term. He used the German phrase Status und Sicherheit, which literally means role confusion. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he was one of the first really to recognize how this collapse of authority, collapse of parental authority, has led to parents unsure what their job is. And this has so Mm -hmm. many ramifications. You know, I have visited now more than 400 schools across the United States. And I've heard, when I visit independent schools, private schools, I've heard from so many directors of admission who are concerned that uh, parents now function as educational consultants, uh, meaning they drive their kids around to various schools and the parent will make a recommendation as an educational consultant might make, but the final choice is left in the hands of the child. But an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old is not competent to make that choice Mm -hmm. because a 12-year-old is going to choose a school based on where they think they'll have fun and where they think they'll have friends. That's that's age appropriate. Uh, You know, they're kids. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what is a 12-year-old supposed to say when her friends say, hey, why are you leaving this school and going to another school? Is she supposed to say, well, I believe at the other school there would be better resources for my studies of uh, computer <laughs> science and mechanical engineering. Well, that's ridiculous. You can't expect a 12-year-old to talk like that. Right. You have to allow the 12-year-old to say, hey, I didn't want to leave you guys. My parents are making me go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> parents have to be comfortable right. exerting parental authority because that's your job. That's in our DNA. And yet the... Uh, American culture has shifted, and not just the popular culture, but the culture of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Columbia Barnard Teachers College and University of Texas Austin. Now, uh, leading professors there will say, let the kid decide. Right. Uh, as the New York Times said, set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. These recommendations are not based in evidence. They are based in a a political ideology Mm -hmm. that is opposed to parental authority. And there are historical and political reasons for that. But I always try to fight against the politicization of this topic. I Mm -hmm. I never like to mention anything about American politics because that's immensely destructive. You don't want to get sucked into that morass. You simply have to look at the science and say, look, the scholars tell us that our species is unique. Mm -hmm. 
No other species devotes so many years to the uh, training of children and adolescents. Um, no other species has anything approaching human culture. I mentioned a moment ago how samurai Japan, that culture is so radically different from uh, the culture of, say, 19, uh, 20th century America. Uh, and it is. Uh, no such analog exists in any uh, other species. And scientists have studied chimpanzees at great length, and they do find the very beginnings of a chimpanzee culture. So, for example, in one uh, community of chimpanzees in the wild in Africa, they find that uh, the chimpanzees will strip a stick, uh, take off all of its leaves and branches before putting the stick in uh, a termite mound to fish for termites. Whereas another uh, chimpanzee colony uh, 100 miles away does not do that. Hmm. And this is passed from one generation to the next. Uh, culture is not genetic by definition. It is taught from hmm. one generation to the next. Uh, well, that's about it as far as chimpanzee culture goes. Do you strip your stick or not? Uh, <laughs> that's the only decision that mom yeah. has to make? Are you yes. kidding me? <laughs> uh, whereas human culture is so wildly and endlessly complex and variable, not just language, but custom. Uh, mm -hmm. Japanese tea ceremony contrasted with the making of cheese in Appenzell, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. which I witnessed firsthand. Uh, yeah, 12-year-old in Appenzell can uh, participate in the cheese-making process. Uh, if, if you took a 12-year-old from the United States or Japan, they'd be utterly lost. They would have no idea what to do, even mm -hmm. if they somehow knew the Appenzell dialect, uh, it, mm. Human culture is a great treasure, uh, but it matters. And if you don't teach your child right. your culture, if you set them adrift, as Jennifer Finney Boylan of the New York Times recommends that you do, mm. then they will look to their screen and they will look to the popular culture. There are four women right now who have Instagram followings of more than 170 million. They are Kim Kardashian, Selena Gomez, Ariana Grande, and Kylie Jenner. That's not the culture you want your child to learn. No. That is a toxic culture that's all about being famous and wealthy and mm -hmm. looking good. Mm -hmm. It's all about surface and appearance, and it is destructive. Uh, that's a toxic culture. And this is not a guess. Uh, again, in the collapse of parenting, I share the research showing that the more your kid is immersed in that culture, the cult of fame and wealth, to borrow a phrase used by UCL researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, let me say a word about that UCLA study quick, because I think it, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people hearing this may think, oh, this old guy is just on a rant. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard this before. Kids these days, uh, you know, back in my day, they had real music and kids these days listen to trash, you know. <laughs> I heard that growing up 50 years yeah. ago, you know, what's different? Well, mm. something important is different. And again, in, in all my books, I'm always relying on the research. There's over 300 scholarly references in the collapse of parenting. And, and one of the most valuable there in understanding what I mean by the culture disrespect is a study by uh, at UCLA, mm -hmm. where they looked at the most popular television shows targeting children and teens in 1967, 1977, 1987, 1997, and 2007. And they quantified these shows on 16 parameters in terms of what the show is trying to teach, what message is being communicated. And they found that the most popular shows from 1967 through 1997 were actually very consistent in the message they were communicating, whether it was the Andy Griffith Show in 1967, Happy Days in 1977, mm -hmm. Family Ties in 1987, or Sabrina the Teenage uh, Vampire, I think she was. Uh, oh, she's a teenage witch. <laughs> Sabrina's a teenage witch, witch, I think, defending against vampires. I don't know. I didn't right, see the right, show. Right. I just read the study. And they said, although those shows were all very different from one another in terms of production values and characters, the actual message they were communicating 
was very consistent from mm -hmm. 1967 through 1997. The message was, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is to do the right thing. Mm. And to be a good friend, to be a good family member. Right. Even if it hurts, that's the most important thing. And uh, my daughter and I have out watched every one of the 241 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show. Oh, uh, and it's it's striking how countercultural it is. But uh, uh, anyhow, between 1997 and 2007, these researchers find American culture flipped mm. upside down. Being famous and being wealthy had been at the very bottom, 13, 14, 15, or 16, consistently, out of 16, from 1967 through 1997. But then, in 2007, the most popular shows, like Survivor, iCarly, American Idol, suddenly the most important thing is, is winning, is being famous and wealthy. Wow. Uh, and other studies suggest it's only gotten worse since then. And these researchers concluded that American popular culture of two, as of 2007 has become a cult of fame and wealth. Mm -hmm. That's their phrase. And what they mean by that is that the most popular TV shows, the most popular uh, Instagram celebrities like Kim Kardashian, uh, the most popular uh, TikTok videos are all about being famous and being mm -hmm. wealthy. And as I mentioned, my daughter and I have watched every one of the 241 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show. There's an episode in which Aunt B, one of the three leads, is offered the opportunity to become a national spokesperson for a line of uh, home cleaning products. Uh, mm -hmm. She has accidentally bumped into the president of this company uh, and, and raves about his products, and he's so impressed he has a commercial made with her. And, and after the commercial airs, the sales soar. And so he says, Aunt B, I'm going to make you famous. We're going to put you on a private jet. We're going to fly you around the country. <laughs> You'll lead workshops for other housewives. You'll make commercials. You're going to be rich and famous. And she seriously considers the offer. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the episode, she says, no, mm -hmm. what do I, I don't want to be rich and famous. Yeah. My place is here. Being here and being part of this family is way more important to me than being rich and famous. Wow. And there's a very some almost identical episode in I Love Lucy a few years earlier. Uh, that was characteristic of American culture. Uh, in 1967, 1977, 1987, 1997, that being a good member of the family, doing the right thing, mm -hmm. telling the truth, way more important than being rich and famous. That is no longer true. Right. of American culture. And that's not some old guy ranting. That yeah. is the conclusion of scholars who have carefully and methodically compared American popular culture now with American popular culture 30 or 50 years ago. I'm not saying 50 years ago were the good old days. No, I lived yeah. through that area. I'm well aware that uh, American culture 50 years ago was much more racist and sexist than it is today. We don't want to mm -hmm. go back to the past. No. But we must recognize the challenges that our kids face, and we must not follow the advice of the New York Times to set your child adrift, or, or the phrase was to set your child free to discover themselves their own right and wrong. I think the advice in Deuteronomy 6 is much wiser right. to inscribe these laws on the hearts of your children. So the final... Um thought I have on this chapter is this is so good, Leonard. Oh my goodness. I'm learning more and more every time I talk to you. Um, but the final thought I have on this, on this first chapter is that the first job of the parent is to teach the child. But when that doesn't happen, when parents don't matter more than the child's peers, right? This is when everything falls apart. And you just said something a minute ago about authority and when authority crumbles, everything crumbles. It's just like a coach on a basketball team. When the coach doesn't show up, the team crumbles. They don't have a leader. And that's what's happening. So when parents are faced with these really difficult things in culture, and when they don't take a stand and set that high bar and, and do this leadership that you're talking about, then our kids naturally will just go to their peers to be their leaders. And so what happens when that happens is our peers 
like I like to say, they leave home, even though we're still feeding them. Somehow they emotionally leave, they're attaching to their peers. And now their peers are teaching them the culture. And we get this cult of youth is the way you describe it. Um, in this in this chapter and this whole thing, I was talking to even my daughter about this yesterday about how um, just our culture seems to really disregard elderly people, right? And parents as well as grandparents. And, and I know you've done a lot of work recently with some of these pop songs. And I think um, the, the pieces that you've written on that have just been fabulous. But I think it points to the fact that if parents don't wake up, if they don't start structuring things and become the authority in their kid's life again, this, this is what's going to happen. And this cult of youth with the pop culture that's out there is incredibly demoralizing. And, and I think parents need to understand, like you say in this chapter, that parents who put the child's wishes first may learn only of their contempt and not their love. So it's backfiring. So just let's finish this chapter a bit with your research and your take on this pop culture, because they're going to go somewhere. Our kids are either going to be in our home or they're going to be out there. You know, Leonard, it's very hard to do both. So talk about that a minute. Yeah, uh, well, indeed, you can't just turn off the bad stuff. You have to offer some good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to be aware how bad the bad stuff is. And uh, you mentioned an article I wrote uh, recently about one of the most popular videos, actually the most popular video uh, ever in terms of streams in its first week, uh, a song called WAP, W-A-P by Cardi B. Uh, that uh, broke all the records for most streams, 93 million streams of the video in its first week. No uh, video before or since has accomplished that feat. Uh, and yet when, I, when I've spoken to parents about this in the last few months, and I've done a, a bunch of, of Zoom videos uh, for parents groups, uh, most parents have never heard of this song because mm -hmm. uh, it's not a song that people over 30 are listening to. It's a song that's primarily popular with teenagers, and it is immensely popular with teenagers, white and black, affluent and low income, coast to coast and everywhere in between. Uh, the song is an ode to vaginal lubrication. Uh, I can't say on a family network what those three mm -hmm. letters stand for. Mm -hmm. You can easily find the Ackerman uh, acronym online, uh, WAP, but I'll tell you that the, the W stands for wet and the mm -hmm. A and the P are both uh, <laughs> words that you're not supposed to say out loud. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the song is full of the F word, uh, the N word, uh, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, all about, it's all about vaginal lubrication. Uh, there's no mention of love or relationship. It is literally an ode to the mechanics of, of vaginal intercourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and the video leaves no doubt about that. And parents don't know what mm -hmm. their kids are listening to. So one of my recommendations, very concrete recommendations, is no earbuds, no headsets. You need to know what, you, what your kids are listening to. You must limit and govern what your kids are listening to. And they should not be listening to this song. Mm -mm. Because we have a lot of research showing that what kids listen to influences them. And mm -hmm. I, I cited that research in the article that you, that you read and, mm -hmm. and, and alluded to. Uh, we have scholarly research showing that if kids are listening to songs like this, they are more likely to agree with statements uh, about, uh, that are very uh, tolerant of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. That... Uh, if a uh, woman invites a man to, to her apartment, then she's obligated to have sex with him and things like this. Mm -hmm. uh, these uh, 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 songs are really toxic, and that's not a guess. Kids listening to these songs are more likely to be uh, accepting of sexual violence, more likely to regard sex as a commodity that girls provide to boys and have an obligation to provide to boys. It's really toxic stuff. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the American parents, many of them have no clue what their kids are listening to. Right. 
Um, and their kids will say, uh, the kids will vehemently deny that these songs influence them. Right. They'll say, oh, I don't listen to the lyrics. I just like the beat. Right. Um, <laughs> the research contradicts that. Yeah. It matters. It matters what your kid is listening to. And again, you can't just turn off the, the bad stuff. You have to turn on the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of good things going on in American uh, culture. Right. Uh, and you have to uh, be the guardian. You have to uh, ensure that your kid is listening to the good stuff and not to the bad stuff. I am very grateful and I, I thank God every day that my daughter somehow inherited my love of German culture and she can sing uh, all the all of uh, the uh, last movement of Beethoven's Ninth to you in German, and so uh, I'm I'm very thankful uh, for that. Uh, there's so many great, so much great music out there. Right, we have to help them. And with my boys, this is what I took your advice um, and started opening the doors to these different music and art avenues. And you know they they. Um, they obsess over it just as much as other teenagers obsess over these horrible songs. They love it. They love it. Like your daughter, she loves, you know, your culture and it, the light bulb needs to go off in our, in our brains as parents to realize that we are the ones that are not only responsible for it, but we have the authority and we have control and people don't like that word control, but that is what it is. We, we get to decide what happens in our house and, um, it doesn't take, you know, a, a brain scientist to figure this out. Um, obviously, it took me reading your book to really figure it out. <laughs> so maybe you're like a brain scientist, maybe. Um, but I figured out that if I offer up these things and we listen and play the music that we want them to listen to, then they start liking it because it's our culture and this is how they're being brought up. So then you have a 10th grader who gets up early to play 30 minutes on the piano before he goes to school. I didn't tell him to do this. This is the natural progression of what happens. Yeah. That's a wonderful illustration, incidentally, of uh, what I talk about in, in The Collapse of Parenting. I talk about the importance of educating desire. Yes. Educating desire. Uh, so many parents will say to me, I just want her to be happy. I just mm -hmm. want her to be happy. Well, if you don't educate desire, researchers find that what American teenage girls like most is social media, and what American teenage boys like most is video games or pornography. Mm -hmm. You've got to educate desire. You've got to instill a longing, a desire for something better and more lasting uh, than, than video games, pornography, and social media. And, and your son choosing on his own to play the piano it's a wonderful illustration of what it means to educate desire. Love that. I love that term, educate desire. And this only happens when parents matter more than peers. That's the only way it happens. It's not that there's anything wrong with peers. We're going to talk about that later. Peers are great, but parents have to have the authority. They have to matter more. And then you can begin to teach what's right and wrong in a meaningful way. And you have to prioritize that because it, will, it won't happen on its um, naturally. But what we're seeing now is the benefit of years of doing that. Now we're seeing the fruit of that. And it's a, a world I can't explain. It is so fabulous. <laughs> it's so different than what our life was. So that that kind of wraps up some of that first chapter, even though we could go on and on forever on it. Um, but let's talk a minute about chapters two and three, and we'll we'll touch on four, and then we're going to get into the, the final, the fifth chapter in this part one. But um, in chapters two and three, you're talking about why so many kids are overweight and on medications. And you mentioned three things. Basically, the reason why they're overweight is it's uh, what they're doing, what they're eating, and how much sleep they're getting. So I think what they're doing and what they're eating, we can read about that. Talk about a little bit about the sleep you know, we keep hearing this and I know parents are like, why do you keep talking about sleep? Okay. What's the big deal with sleep? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Why is it important that they get sleep? Well, let me just remind uh, readers in, in uh, 1970, about 4% of American kids were obese. 
Mm -hmm. uh, latest data, more than 18% of American kids are obese. So more oh, than a quadrupling. Uh, and you very correctly summarized, uh, uh, has to do with uh, more than one factor. Uh, but sleep is one of those factors. Uh, kids are getting less sleep than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And that's a uniquely North American phenomenon. Uh, and you can't blame it simply on the emergence of uh, mobile phones. Kids in the United Kingdom are just as likely to own a mobile phone at the same age as American kids. But sleep has not declined in uh, the United Kingdom for children or teenagers. And it has declined uh, by more than 90 minutes a night Wow. for American teenagers compared with American teenagers 20 years ago. And why is that? Well, I can tell you because I've spoken on this topic across England. I've talked to parents uh, in, in London, in Winchester, in Kent, in Tunbridge, in Newcastle-upon-Time, in Loughborough, and up in Edinburgh and Perthshire. And I can tell you that parents in England do not let their kids go to bed with a phone. Mm -hmm. The phone is not in the bedroom. Uh, there are exceptions, I've heard of them, but the norm in the United Kingdom is that the parent takes the phone. Wow. Uh, and the norm in the United States is that the kid takes the phone to the bedroom. And kids are, and, and kids are, boys are staying up past midnight playing video games, girls are staying up past midnight on social media, and they're sleep deprived. Yeah. Uh, there's no gender difference, incidentally. Girls and boys are equally likely to be sleep deprived. And in uh, chapter two, I present the research that if you're sleep deprived, you're more likely to get fat. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a couple factors that seem to be driving that, but one is food choices. Mm -hmm. When you're well rest rested, uh, broccoli and br Brussels sprouts uh, are a lot more palatable. Uh, when you're sleep deprived, it's like all you want is uh, pizza, mm -hmm. uh, potato chips, and ice cream. Wow. Uh, and scholars are trying to understand why that is so, but it is clear that it is so in our species, that wow. sleep deprivation leads to overweight. Wow, that's interesting. So parents have to take the device, turn it off. Uh, you know, one of the fundamental jobs of a parent is to ensure your kids get a good night's sleep. And I've heard from so many, so many teachers in recent years Teachers who say, I've been teaching for 20 years, and I've never seen what I'm seeing now, which is kids falling asleep in class. Wow. It is now common in affluent neighborhoods. This is true across the socioeconomic spectrum. It's at least as true in affluent neighborhoods as it is in low-income neighborhoods, uh, that kids are falling asleep because they didn't get enough sleep last night. Uh, and and hmm. uh, teachers have told me how... Uh, they, they, their kid is using a school computer uh, to play a video game at two in the morning. And the teacher will reach out to the parent and say, hey, uh, you need to make sure your kid's not playing video games at two in the morning. And the parent pushes back and says, all the boys are doing it. I don't want to be the evil parent. Yeah. Uh, the parent pushes back. On the teacher's very simple request, could you please make sure your son is not playing video games at two in the morning, oh. which is the parent's job. It's not the teacher's job. Or the te another pushback teachers have told me about, the parents will say, well, it's your job. It's a school computer. It's your job to shut oh. down the computer oh, uh, because, because I can't take the computer from my kid. Uh, it's your job. It's your job. Uh, the parent is utterly unwilling to exercise even the minimal authority of removing the computer from the kid's bedroom uh, because the parent has, again, there's been a collapse of parental authority and the parent doesn't no longer, American parents no longer understand that, hey, you, it is your job to ensure that your kid can sleep through the night without the distraction of playing video games at two in the morning. That's not the school's job. It's right. your job. And yet now it's common to hear of American parents, rich and poor, white and black, pushing back when the school says, would you please make sure your kid's getting a decent night's sleep? Don't let them play video games on the school computer at two in the morning. And the parents say, oh, that's the school's job. It's not my job. 
So in chapter four, um, it's why are American schools falling behind? So this falls right into where we are right here talking about sleep. That's obviously one reason why American students are falling behind. Talk a minute about what your thought is on an, another couple reasons why. Well, students- I begin, first of all, by documenting that. And the publisher has asked me to write an updated edition because the data have gotten more dramatic since then. Yeah. But but in the book, I show I look at the, uh, the piece of the Program for International Student Assessment that looks at the achievement of kids worldwide, and it is by far the leading and most established, most respected mechanism for comparing kids across the developed world. How do American kids do in school compared to kids in England or kids in Switzerland or kids in Australia? The PISA, the Program for International School Assessment, is the leading program, uh, very carefully constructed, administered at 16 years of age, to truly test insight, understanding, comprehension. Uh, uh, it's not just a multiple choice uh, gimmick. It's, it's a very thoughtfully constructed test uh, and very well regarded. And again, I'm old enough to remember when the United States led the world. Yeah. You know, in 1983, there was great concern because uh, since the end of the Second World War, the United States, American kids had led the world in math, science, reading comprehension, etc. number one across the board. And then in 1982, for the first time, the Japanese pulled ahead of Americans in mm-hmm. math and science. And this was panic. And the Reagan administration commissioned a, uh, uh, a study, which was published under the title, A Nation at Risk. And and in a nation at risk, they said this this loss of our first class first place position is a national security issue. You know because mm-hmm. we can't lead the world if our kids are are number two. Right. Uh, it's it's very quaint reading now because America has slipped much farther since then. But as recently as twenty years ago, we were still respectable. We were still bouncing around number ten. Mm-hmm. Actually, as recently, yeah, uh, 2000, we were still doing pretty well. But between 2000 and 2012, the United States plummeted. Wow. And, uh, two th- and it's gotten worse since then. We're now around number 32, number 33, uh, bringing up the rear uh, of developed nations right around Slovenia and Croatia. Mm-hmm. A, a low-income kid in Poland now outperforms an affluent kid in the United States no. on measures of academic achievement. Uh, and most Americans aren't aware of this. So a big focus of that chapter is, first of all, making sure that the reader understands that the academic achievement of American kids relative to the kids in other nations like Poland. In 2000, we were way ahead of Poland. We are now way behind Poland, partly because Poland's gotten better. But the bigger part is because American the achievement of American kids dropped like a rock compared to American kids 20 years ago. Why did this happen? Uh, well, a couple of reasons why it happened, and I explore that in the chapter, but one big reason is screens. Mm-hmm. American schools bought into the idea that screens boost achievement in a way that happened in no other country. Uh, look, people in South Korea love screens. They're addicted to screens. But you don't find screens in Korean classrooms or in Poland or mm-hmm. in Finland. Uh, Uh, Three countries that do much better than us on all these measures of academic achievement. Only in the United States that you now find screens in so many classrooms where you now find uh, uh, teachers using smart boards to teach kids. And we now have tremendous data. Uh, We had pretty good data when I wrote the book. It's gotten a lot stronger since then that screens undermine academic achievement. Uh, the the uh, myth that the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs were pushing, w- which was that screens would boost academic achievement, never had uh, strong evidence to support it. And we now have overwhelming evidence against it. Mm. Education K through 12 begins with the teacher-student relationship and screens undermine and displace that relationship. Mm. And that appears to be a major factor driving the collapse of academic achievement among American students. Um, but, but it goes even deeper than that. It goes to the collapse of authority. Yeah. Uh, uh, a generation ago, you could tell kids, hey, you need to learn algebra because you need to learn algebra. Uh, but now if it isn't fun, if it isn't yeah. entertaining, uh, kids are like, I don't wanna do this. 
and much of the American educational establishment, and I've debated this with professors at University of Texas Austin and University of Wisconsin Madison, uh, much of American education has succumbed to this notion that uh, the teacher's job is to be an entertainer. I remember I was, I was leading a workshop for public school teachers uh, and the school board president came in, the school board president came in to tell the teachers, you're entertainers. Wow. And I got up and, and didn't stay to hear any of my presentation. They, they said, your, your first job is to be an entertainer. This is the president of the school board of a large mm. American school district. Wow. And I said, you know, I hate to disagree with the school board president, but that's not your job. No. Education is not entertainment. That's a uniquely American confusion. Mm. And it is one factor driving the collapse of academic achievement in the United wow. States. And then that leads to the final chapter in this part one, why are American kids so fragile? Yeah. Well, and that goes back to a point that you mentioned earlier. So I uh, cited work done way back in the 1960s by a team of researchers at uh, Johns Hopkins who went nationwide interviewing American uh, teenagers. And one of the questions they'd always ask them, a uh, structured interview, they'd ask, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not approve, would you still join? And uh, a generation ago, uh, the researchers found most American teens would say, no, I wouldn't join. Mm -hmm. Because a generation ago, kids valued the opinion of their parents mm -hmm. more than they valued the combined opinion of all their peers. Wow. So I posed an updated version of that question to uh, kids that I met with at American middle schools and high schools from 2009 onward. I would ask them, if all your friends want you to sign up for a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I got from American kids isn't yes, it's not no, it's laughter. They burst out laughing. Oh. But, uh, over a year ago, a girl said, my parents would probably think TikTok is some kind of alarm clock. You know, why would I ask them? <laughs> now, these kids may say they love their parents, but they care about their peers. They care what their peers think way more than they care what parents think. That's a big change. And it is enormously consequential mm -hmm. because peer relations are contingent and ephemeral. What your peers think of you can change overnight. You can go from the, being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in one day, in five minutes. If, mm -hmm. if your life is built around what your peers think of you, then you have built on sand, mm -hmm. on shifting sand, and, and your life could fall apart, and you know it. And, and you know, there's been an explosion in anxiety among American girls, uh, and I think this is one factor driving it. Uh, if, if your self-concept is based on where you rank in popularity, uh, you know perfectly well that could collapse tomorrow. Yeah. One post on Instagram and you could be toast. Uh, and as a result, when peer relations matter more than parents, kids become fragile. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they can fall apart with something very minor, something very trivial from an adult perspective can cause this kid to fall apart because they call them teacups. Yes, that's Gene Twenge's term. That mm -hmm. uh, 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 professor who's really studied this nationwide in a very methodical they're, way. They're that, beautiful, but with the slightest drop, they'll break. Yes, they are not resilient. They are mm -hmm. fragile. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, this is a, this is a uniquely American phenomenon. Kids, American kids are more fragile than kids in Scotland or in German-speaking Switzerland, or in Germany, or in New Zealand. And I've spoken on this topic in each of those countries. And I can tell you from firsthand observation that parent-child relationship, the family, is a much higher priority in those countries than mm -hmm. it is in this country. You know, I was in um, Stirling uh, in Scotland. I spent a week at uh, what was once a, a uh, ducal residence, which is now a, a, a upscale hotel. And I kind of crashed several weddings uh, in uh, Stirling in Scotland. And 
one thing I saw at each of these weddings, and the kids are very open to talking with uh, American strangers. Hmm. Um, at each of these weddings, you see the grandfather standing with the father, standing with the son, all wearing the same kilt, the same tartan. Mm -hmm. And the teenage son is very proud to stand in that picture. And one of those boys lectured me on the difference between a genuine Scottish kilt and the rubbish they sell to the tourists at the <laughs> Edinburgh Castle. Uh, uh, and, and why the genuine kilt costs 400 pounds, whereas the rubbish at the Edinburgh Castle costs 20 pounds, because the genuine Scottish kilt Everything must be made of Scottish ingredients. The wool must come from Scottish uh, sheep. The dyes must all come from Scottish flowers. Uh, and he's very proud. He's proud of that family connection. He's proud of the bonds across generations. I don't, it would be hard to find an American boy who was proud to wear the same clothes worn by his grandfather yeah. or, or who would lecture you about the importance of the family tradition. Uh, in these other cultures, we find that the family is a higher priority, uh, more important than peer relations. How do kids choose to spend their free time? On the South Island of New Zealand, in Perthshire, in Scotland, in Appenzell, in Garmisch Partenkirchen, uh, kids choose to spend their free time with their family. Hmm. Uh, in the United States, kids who speak English seldom want to spend their free time with their parents on a weekend. Uh, teenagers are hanging, they prefer to hang out with other teenagers. Yeah, it's a blind lean the blind. And then we wonder why they're so fragile and they're dropping out of school and college and talking back to us. And well, it's not that hard know, to figure out. I'd like to put in one thing before we have to close, because, uh, you know, I have corresponded with Jean Twangy and she's done so much good research on this, including during the pandemic. And she has yes. published, I think, one of the most important studies on teens during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, so, again, many American kids now would rather spend their free time with other kids. Well, the pandemic has really thrown a wrench in that because you're not supposed to go to a party with 50 kids crowded into one room anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what's happened? Well, what Gene Twenge has found is that kids have kind of splintered and gone in different directions. Some kids are doing much worse and are more likely to be anxious or depressed than they were before the pandemic. But some kids are doing better mm -hmm. and actually seem to be thriving as a result of the pandemic. What determines which group your teenager is, is in? Family ties. Mm -hmm. she, uh, she can tell you which group this kid's going to be in by asking one question. Since the pandemic began, have your ties with your parents strengthened or not strengthened? Wow. If the kid says the ties have strengthened, then he is flourishing. If the kid says the ties have not strengthened or have gotten weaker, then that kid is struggling. Mm -hmm. If the parent-child relationship is primary, if the kid enjoys spending time with his parents, then that kid is, is flourishing. If the kid would rather go in the room, close the door, and look at a screen, on social media or playing video games with his peers, then that kid is much more likely to become anxious or depressed. That's Gene Twenge's finding. I wrote about that. If you just Google my name and pandemic parenting, okay. you'll find my uh, presentation of her. Yeah, we'll put that link here, the the notes here in the podcast. And um, and, and so really to, to sum it up and to conclude this first part, the more time your child is is spending connecting with their peers and their friends, the more likely they will look to them for guidance about what matters and about all their big questions. I mean, this is ultimately what the result is. The more time they spend with parents, the more you're going to build that relationship. The priorities have to be straight. The mm -hmm. parent-child relationship, the family has to be a higher priority than spending time with same age peers. And this again is where many American parents are confused. Uh, they're they're uh, rushing their, their seven year old to a play date. Uh, and I tell parents, cancel the play date, make a family date instead. It's more important. Make sure your kid is the first priority has to be the family relationship. Peer relations are fine. They're great. They're important. Right. 
right. they're not the first priority. So Leonard, one thing that we've done, and, and we'll sort of wrap it up here that with, with ScreenStrong, this is what our whole organization is about, helping parents figure out that balance. And what we have found out is that if you take the video games and the social media off the plate, right? You take it off the table, like that's not where they're spending their time. They will naturally spend more time with their peers in person, which as you know, is more regulated and balanced when it's not online. It's when it's online, it goes crazy and it's too much time. So they will end up spending more time with their families or more, um, you know, time around the dinner table and around these certain nooks and crannies of their life where the parents are going to be there and they're not going to, they're not going to be heads down on their screen. So I get so excited about our challenge and our little detox program because we're helping parents get it back in balance. We're not saying no to screens. That's not the the point. The point is we've got to balance it back so they spend adequate amount of time building their friends. Of course, that's super important, but it's done in person and it's much harder to obsess and overdo when it's in person. You see what I'm saying? It's Yeah. Well, and I do like your term detox because I do warn parents that if your kid has been addicted to screens and has prioritized uh, hanging out with friends over family time and you're trying to restore mm-hmm. uh, the right order of things with family coming first, the first week or two could be very difficult. Yeah. And again, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage and empower parents if both parents are on the same page and both parents stand their ground in six weeks, mm-hmm. you'll have a different kid yeah. and a happier kid. But the first week or two could be very difficult and both parents have to stand their ground. And that's why we have the Screen Strong Families um, Facebook private group. You can get in if you're out there listening and you, you get Leonard's book, you read this, you want to make some changes, you can do this reset you but you don't have to do it alone it's very hard to do it by yourself right Right. so you've got to have your spouse and it really helps to have a community and we have a really good support community leonard we have parents on here every single day saying i'm on day one i'm on day 10 you know this is what's happening somebody help me (laughs) and so we're all encouraging each other to do this um it's working really really well it's very very based on uh very much based on all the principles in this most excellent book. I'm so excited um, that you were able to join us today. And I'm really, really excited that in part two, we are going to be talking with you about the solution end of things here. And we're going to talk about some of the myths that are out there and the forbidden fruit myth and why, you know, um, why should we not allow all these, I mean, do kids have to immerse themselves in toxic screens so they can then learn to use them better? You know, these are all the questions that, we will have you answer the next show, but thank you so much for coming. But before we sign out for today, can you leave our listeners with just um, maybe a, a tip or something you want to share here at the end before we go? Well, well, sure. Picking up on my point about the importance of prioritizing the family, and we'll talk more next time about the various ways you do that. But one very simple, concrete tip that you can do today at zero cost no earbuds, no headsets in the car. When you're in the car, you should be listening to your daughter and she should be listening to you, not to Cardi B or Miley Cyrus. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's we play music in the car, but we sing along to the same music. Uh, the car, the time in the car is special. It's private time. And it, this is a great opportunity to build the parent-child relationship no earbuds, no headsets in the car. Great tip. That is so practical. And I, what I love about that is when you do that, the benefits are so amazing and your kid starts talking to you and you start hearing yeah. things that you would never have heard. Yeah. Well, again, that's a great opportunity because it's private time. And, uh, uh, you know, the first time, if you haven't been doing this, the first time your daughter may be sullen and she won't talk. But right. if you stick with it, eventually she'll start talking because there's not much else to do. Yeah. Uh, no screens in the car. Uh, Excellent. The time in the car should be time for you to listen to your daughter and talk to your daughter. Thank you so much. Leonard, thank you so much for coming and for your time today. Thanks again. 
And thank you all for listening and um, be sure and pass this on to your friends and have them join your community and our little village that we're creating around this movement to get our kids back. Head over to our website to learn a little bit more about Screen Strong and our Screen Strong Challenge and make sure you join our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. Remember, we have your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd and stay strong. Thank you.